0: Welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We're glad you're able to join us today uh, for the show. And we also want to remind you to follow us on Facebook so you get additional information about the issues and uh, uh, areas that we're covering. Uh, But also on SoundCloud, uh, you can download the recordings of of the shows. And you can also download podcasts uh, of our... Uh, shows uh, each week uh, so that you can carry them with you and listen whenever you have the opportunity. So not just here at noon on KTRL FM 90.5. So to start today's show, we, we are doing a focus over the coming weeks uh, that will have a segment each in each week's show looking at our community and our region and some of the challenges and issues that we are facing uh, in the midst of the coronavirus or COVID-19 crisis and as we've seen and, and we're all experiencing every day this is, has an impact on so many different levels so many facets of our lives uh, have changed uh, and and in the mix of all of that uh, is the role that our government entities play uh, on a on a wide range of, of of issues the 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 number of issues that they have to address that are a part of this challenge in front of us if you turn on the news or what's happening at the national level Uh, Sometimes what's happening at the state level, uh, but we don't get as much information about what is going on right here in our own community. I know there are uh, social media outlets and uh, we've got our local uh, newspapers, but not everybody's tuned into those. And so one of the things that we wanted to do here on Cogley and Morrow on politics is to try to to give a little more focus uh, to some of the significant challenges that are impacting our lives, to hear from people that are in various organizations and institutions to help us not only see those challenges and issues around us and, and try to understand uh, the significance of them, how people are overcoming them, how people are working through them to continue the essential services and the essential functions that we need around us to support our everyday lives, but then also looking ahead. Uh, what are What are some of the things that we're going to have to consider coming out of this? What will be the impact? And I know some of that is not very clear at this moment, socially, politically, economically, uh, we're seeing uh, beginnings of things, but but so this this is going to be analyzed for months and really years. And if we, we think back about the 9/11 crisis and, and what happened following that, we can even say decades that, that this will have an impact. So today our, we turn our focus to public education. Uh, that has been an area that has been impacted from, Uh, preschool all the way through university uh, as we as we know here at tarleton state with going online with our classes and suspending activities for the semester but for most of our listeners in our listening area the the impact here has been on children that are in public schools because they have had to make a tremendous adjustment here really coming into this semester and 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 really, into the month of March, without realizing and knowing uh, what was coming, and then all of a sudden, within a matter of a few weeks, having to make a tremendous number of decisions uh, to keep uh, providing that public service and to keep uh, people engaged and to try to transition what was and has been, if we look back, you know, at at, at the modern era, not having a disruption like this at all. Uh, w- what is significant in trying to continue? Uh, teaching continues students learning and engaged uh, from home uh, and not in a school setting. And so we want to welcome today. we have the uh, superintendent of the Toller Independent School District, uh, Mr. Travis Stilwell, who uh, grew up in Azle and has been in this, this area uh, for, for a number of decades and has certainly been also in higher education. He's been in, in, in public education for 27 years and in the past 21 years, in administration, serving both as a high school principal, uh, nine years as high school principal here in Stephenville, two years as an intermediate principal, uh, and then uh, for the past six years, he has been the superintendent at Toler. Uh, welcome, Travis. We're glad to have you on the show today. And uh, tell us a little bit more about, uh, about your background, and then let's, let's kind of turn to the, the focus on hand, and that is uh, the challenges and the issues that you've had to address in the last uh, month in uh in the midst of this crisis
1: well thank you eric and uh, uh it's uh, i'm proud to, to be with you today as far as uh my background you know you you kind of you kind of hit it there with uh, my educational experience uh you know i will say you know i'm a, a proud texan i received my uh, both my bachelor and master's degree at Charlton state and uh, uh my family uh, my daughter is going to graduate from uh charlton in may and uh and then my son he plans on attending charlton in uh, the fall uh my wife also graduated from charlton state and uh uh so we're we're a big texan family and uh uh as far as the the challenges that that you're talking about today you know it's a uh, uh obviously there are many and uh you know we uh, like everybody across the state uh we're, we somewhat caught off guard by this, uh, you know, uh, as we left for spring break, uh, you know, the word that, that was coming out was that this was obviously a serious situation, but, uh, nobody, uh, we didn't realize it was going to be quiet to this extent. Um, so when we came back from spring break, uh, or did not come back from spring break is, uh, more accurate, uh, at the end of the week of spring break we started hearing uh the news you know the national news and uh that president had, had closed travel from europe and uh and then it just continued from there you know the uh, we realized how serious it was when all the uh the sports teams and, and leagues were shut down and and just uh, th- this was a, a really uh serious situation so uh, the superintendents across the state uh, in this area in particular yeah, I spoke with or uh, was in contact with you know a lot of the superintendents in the area uh, everybody does a great job of, of helping each other out and we bounce ideas off of each other uh, on a regular basis just to you know to make sure we're all doing the best that we can uh, but during this situation of course as you can imagine you know superintendents were Uh, talking uh, rapidly trying to figure out the uh, best course of action and uh, at that time uh, of course it seems like it's been a long time now because uh, just there's so much that's transpired but when we came out of spring break there was no guidance uh, from the state or, uh, or from the governor you know as far as if or when or if we should shut down and uh Pretty much everybody decided after spring break to take the the cautious approach and decided to uh, close schools and go with a uh, a remote learning uh, initiative and distance learning and uh, so immediately after spring break we uh, we just started talking I I know uh, I'll I'll tell you it it literally uh, brought me to tears uh, at the end of the first week uh, just just out of, out of pure uh, just joy and, and pride you know for for what I saw uh, from our staff and I can tell you that across the uh, uh, the state and the nation you know educators uh, I think we should be very proud of our educators because I know when we came back from spring break I had a, a zoom conference uh, I haven't seen uh, all of our teachers together uh since spring break but we we met via zoom and uh at that time you know we gave the directive that uh, we were going to go online in two days uh that we were going to start on wednesday and and i can tell you that the teachers they uh, the teachers and the campus principals they just they they jumped to it and and they got it done and i um, so so very proud of the efforts that they took and, and, and they, the changes that they made in a very quick, short amount of time. Uh, in addition, you know, the uh, another challenge um, with going to distance learning is uh, the technology capabilities that uh, your students have. And, of course, uh, all the listeners at home, everybody, uh, we all understand this. You know, if, if you have kids at home, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you know you had to have to have uh, uh something to do the work on a laptop or an ipad or chromebook or something and then uh fi is a big deal and uh some of the things that uh i know every district uh, again as i talk about things that we're doing in toller uh you know I, i'm proud of our people but i but i know that uh efforts like this have been made across the state and uh, uh other people have done other things, but, but we went through and uh, contacted a, a local company, and uh, they provided free Wi-Fi for some of our students who did not have Wi-Fi. Uh, also, we went through and uh, uh, we added ports on the back of our, our high school building to create um, kind of a hot spot in the high school parking lot so students could come up and do their work uh, from the parking lot. But but Wi-Fi and uh, just technology capabilities, that's been a big issue. Um, We also have uh, packets, uh, just like other districts, for students that uh, are not able to utilize the technology. So that that was a big challenge. Uh, Another challenge, of course, that uh, all districts are are dealing with is just uh feeding feeding students. You know, it's a uh, uh that's important. You know, a lot of our a lot of our families and and our kids they rely on on meals from the school and uh we as and just like every other district in Texas uh, have proceeded with providing meals and uh, and coming up with the uh, uh, the procedures to do that safely. Um let's see I, you know just, just a lot of things uh grading guidelines and policies uh I know it's a big challenge you know with uh, our uh, number one goal as a district is to create and maintain a culture of high expectations and we've been pushing that and pushing that for for our educators and, and they do a great job of uh, really challenging our students well now that we are in this different environment the uh, educational model is different we have to temper our expectations a little bit so that's been a challenge and, and we've worked through that um, little things just like uh, board meetings you know you uh, to have a school board meeting you know we can't get together so now uh, we did squeeze one last meeting in before uh, all the restrictions came out but the, you know moving forward uh, those will be be a zoom and I'm, I'm hoping that's uh they won't last for long you know that we get out of this but we'll have to use zoom uh, i wish i would have bought stock in zoom i know they uh they're doing very well uh let's see just uh another challenge and thing we had to overcome just like everybody else just uh work hours for faculty and staff you know whenever you're deciding um essential activities you know we've really had to work on um what's really important and what can wait. And uh, we've cut our hours back because of that. Uh, fortunately, the state of Texas and, uh, uh, you know, our funding was not uh, impacted through this. So uh, very thankful for that. And uh, we, as as most districts have has passed resolutions to be able to take care of our hourly employees during this time. Um, and, and just a challenge of not seeing uh, people you know as educators we're we're in this business uh, we're in the people business and we love kids and we love teachers and you know i I personally i just i miss seeing everybody
0: yeah that that uh uh, we experience that here on the college campus but even in that that school environment especially think about those uh, younger uh, children that are being shaped by those uh, teachers who you know like you pointed out very dedicated in making that transition and putting in the effort but uh, I, I was thinking of that and as really one of the the challenging aspects of this uh is that that yes learning can take place and and that's going to be on a number of different levels which i, I think you've got to be concerned about going forward but just that level of interaction in activities in uh, sporting events in the classroom uh that that to me seems one of the more significant challenges right now
1: no oh, it is you know the uh uh, i think we we forget a lot about the uh, interpersonal relationships that are built and uh uh you know uh, the 3r's of education is rigor relevance and relationships and uh right now you know we can control the rigor we can we can make our lessons relevant but and we can still control relationships but there's nothing like being uh, with people and and it's a challenge and uh i know uh you know my my personal kids as I see them. You know they're they're struggling with it. Um, they're stir crazy and they're ready to see their friends and uh, uh, just just like every everybody is. So that that is a big challenge. And uh, like I said, hopefully um, hopefully we're able to get back to normal uh, soon so these kids can we can uh, be together again.
0: Right on on the uh, and, and we're hoping that's going to happen uh, soon. I know we've got a. Some challenging days ahead of us, but uh, hopefully we can, we can see that happen. I, I had a question because there is a lot of information out there or uh, a lot of misinformation, too, about uh, different things the state has done, uh, and this is one area I think where parents need to, to be informed because you're being impacted by these decisions. So what, what are some of the things that have changed that would have been in the normal ebb and flow of the school year uh, that are now either been suspended by the state or adjusted in some
1: way. Well, I, I think the uh, you know first and foremost, uh, you know, as as we were making decisions on closures, uh, of course the governor came out and in his initial uh, declaration were that all schools would be closed through April the ninth. Uh, now it has been pushed forward to where all schools are closed through at least uh, Monday May the fourth. Uh, in addition with, uh, UIL activities, I uh, just received an email today and, and pretty much it just said, we're, we're in pause. You know, everything is paused, mm-hmm. uh, no, uh, of course, no activities, no practices or games or anything like that. So, you know, those are things, decisions, and I think they were wise decisions, but those were decisions that were made that, uh, we were following
0: right and and some of the i think there were other things like uh of course we know the the testing everybody uh oh, yeah, i mean there sure, was yes. i think there was just a, a a huge sigh that could be heard across the state when, uh, yeah when, sir, that uh,
1: that was a that was a big one and a big one and uh on testing and you you could tell in the beginning that this was something very unprecedented you know because mm-hmm. the state holds those tests very near and dear and uh when the commissioner came out and said that, uh, they were suspending testing for this year. Uh, you, you knew that this was unlike anything we've seen before, but, uh, yes, with testing, they, uh, so basically the all testing has, or, uh, star testing has been suspended for this year. Um, some things that I know kids or, or parents may be worried about, um, So let's say a kid is in Algebra 1, and typically you need to pass the Algebra 1 uh, star exam to be able to graduate, well, if they, uh, that that test is being waived. Hmm. So if a student moves forward and and they're taking geometry, they're not going to have to go back and take the Algebra 1 exam, which which makes a lot of sense. You know, if you've moved on, uh, you don't want to have to come back and take something that uh, you haven't been working on for a few months
0: right right well in in that regard where uh i mean there has to be some concern about maintaining standards as you had said earlier where now you've got uh, parents who are are much more responsible for engaging and making sure that their uh, child or teenager is is uh, doing what they need to be doing uh of course we've all seen the Uh, uh, the things on on social media about how uh, the level of appreciation for teachers has increased dramatically uh, with uh, with all of this and people realizing wow is this what what goes on and I'm only doing a little bit every day or every few days and they do this all day long so but but on the the other side of that in coming back I, I didn't know and this is looking ahead a little bit in terms of what decisions or challenges may be there is is about how do you assess students that have gone through something like this to know that they're that they're ready or that they may need some additional attention in some areas to just keep moving forward and I know that may depend by grade level or age or you know elementary to junior high to high school but this this really I mean the obvious is this is gonna create some gaps for some students and some challenges that that are gonna fall on on school districts to address
1: no, absolutely, we, uh, uh, I know that's the case, you know, when we go through, of course, we're, like we said, we're doing our very best as far as providing uh, educational materials at this time, but it's it's not quite the same as uh, what the student generally gets when they're they're face-to-face in a classroom, uh, so we know at the beginning of next year, uh, or whenever we get back, whether it's in May or at the beginning of next year, we know that uh we're going to be playing catch up a little bit and we're going to have to adjust our curriculum for uh, some review times and uh, uh, to try to help those kids out and fill in the gaps where uh, there may be some.
0: Right. Well, looking ahead like that, uh, what are some of the other uh, issues that are being discussed among superintendents? And as you look toward a, you know, we've got a a legislative cycle that'll be coming up this next year. Uh, But what are some of the things coming out of this that, either be, you know, you think are, are direct challenges that will need to be addressed uh, by the state or um, just in in terms of certain policy areas or or aspects of public education that may need to be uh, looked at or, or analyzed coming out of this to be better prepared in the future, saying we have another round of this or if we have another similar type of crisis?
1: No, I, I think for sure, you know, one thing that... Uh um uh, this is a timely question i know i've i've been working on our emergency operations plan uh this morning and i know that uh in the past you know with the emergency operations plans you know we focused a lot on uh intruders and in various situations like that uh pandemics uh it it hasn't been a, a major focus uh i think we uh, every district, every school, every district uh, across the state and across the nation is going to have to uh, reevaluate and, and think through uh, number one steps to keep our, our students safe, um, and and education that we can do to uh, help our, our students stay safe. And then, uh, if this occurs again, you know how how we'll be more prepared, and and how do we how do we handle that? um i think you know in addition uh talking about the legislative cycle and where things are going and and what a big concern of, of mine is uh and of course this is a concern of everybody uh moving forward is you know the economy and uh mm-hmm. you know it is uh concerning to me you know where what is this going to do to school funding uh in the future and uh i think that's going to be a big i think that's going to be a big issue you know when you're talking a year two years down the road uh in 2005 you know if you look historically uh, in 2005 the uh, legislature went through and compressed the tax rate and at that time it went down to a dollar uh shortly after compressing the tax rate uh there there was a virus, it wasn't to this extent, I think SARS and then uh uh also at that time they had the uh housing market. You know, everybody was uh they were borrowing way more than they could they could uh pay right, back right and, and the right. housing market crashed. Well around 2010, 2011, uh there was a significant cut in school funding. Well uh you know i hope history doesn't repeat itself but of course obviously we're in a unprecedented times as far as uh this situation and what it's going to do to the uh the economy and uh i think we've all all had to be cautious and and kind of prepared moving forward to uh, uh to be ready for
0: that right yeah there, there are going to be adjustments on a, a number of fronts and as as you're seeing that it public ed and, and concern there we're looking at it in higher education too as to what uh, what the outcome will be of this in terms of, of of resources uh because it it is a not only a challenging crisis but there there are some changes that are going to have to happen and usually those mean in this state you need additional resources it's not it's not something that you can just move things around from one area to another and um well i, I really want to thank you for joining us today i think i think the 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 insight that you offer being on the front lines in public education like that and in an area that has been impacted tremendously already in such a short period of time. It just helps our our listeners understand that. And and we appreciate your leadership and and what you've done and and certainly the dedication of your staff and teachers and and of all of our educators across the region uh, in trying to continue a very vital public service uh, in our communities uh, in the midst of of just an unprecedented uh, a crisis, and certainly knowing that in the modern age like this that we we have technology that's helped us to overcome some of that, uh, but there are areas and, and and aspects of public education that just uh, uh, really uh, suffer uh, and 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 are not a part of that full experience that we want our children and youth to have. And so your your uh, analysis of that, and then the work going forward that we know you have and your staff and, and our, and our teachers are just, uh, uh, uh we, we appreciate the, the, dedication that it's going to take to, to, to work through this and, and to continue to move forward. So thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Uh, Eric, thank you.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back after the break for more Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Tea for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. You may be wondering uh, why it is just me today, but we will have Dr. Cogley joining us later. We are... Practicing uh, social distancing here, uh, and we'll be even moving to a format in the next few weeks uh, where uh, we're doing all of this by Zoom, uh, I believe, so uh, that we can maintain appropriate distancing and continue to offer Cogley and Morrow on politics each week uh, during this crisis. Uh, As a follow up to the interview that we had with Travis uh, Stillwell, the superintendent of Toller ISD, we just want to thank all of our teachers, educators, and administrators out there. I think this is an area one one of the many areas that has been very uh, very challenging in the transition. It's been a very uh, difficult uh, ch- challenge to turn something that has is a part of our lives on a day to day basis and move that completely to an online environment, especially for I think smaller children, but just school children in general, uh, our young people when that face-to-face interaction is so important and so we do want to thank all of our educators out there and the work that they're doing uh, to keep public education education in general moving forward whether it's at the higher education level as we see here at tarleton state or uh, in all of our uh, regional and public school districts throughout the state uh, in the nation uh, in the midst of all of this as we've talked about each week we do have an ongoing uh, presidential uh election process. Uh, while it has been delayed in terms of primaries, uh, there is still polling going on. There's still campaigning to a certain degree. Uh, and there, there's information coming out and just looking at how in the midst of this crisis, uh, individuals are considering uh, what their choice for leadership for the nation and looking at the fall election. So before we move to our final segment, where we'll bring in uh, Dr. Cogley, I just wanted to bring attention to a recent uh, Monmouth University poll. This is one of the uh, of quality polling places that does get out uh, very in, uh, engaging polls at certain times on certain things, and so a poll was released last week in looking at how the race for president uh, has been tightening uh, and looking at some of the factors beginning to look at the impact of the COVID-19 crisis uh, on the election. And so there were a couple of things that we have followed in our discussions on the show related to the elections. And I wanted to look at uh, three different things that came out in this poll that I think are significant to watch uh, as we look at where the country is going. And I'll put this uh, a link to this on our Facebook page so that people can go and look at the polling and the questions uh, uh, for yourself and just kind of uh, uh, analyze this and think about it in terms of what's happening in politics uh, in in the country related to the presidential election. So a couple of things with this poll that I think are quite significant. Uh, One of the major ones, and we know this has an impact on presidential elections, is how voters view their financial situation. So we're just now beginning to see uh, uh, people expressing the impact of this crisis on certain industries and areas that are being challenged uh, because of loss of jobs, because of loss of revenue uh, by certain types of companies. And so financial situation is one that while it's on the radar in this poll just a week ago uh, it is showing that, uh, that, that fewer voters are saying that their financial situation is improving and we can expect that, to, that trend to continue that the financial situation for many Americans I mean when we see almost 10 million in the last few weeks file for unemployment it's just uh, uh, just unprecedented in terms of the numbers percentage wise you know we we were not anywhere near the levels of unemployment that we saw during the great depression uh, almost a century ago but but we are we're moving in that direction and that's probably going to continue uh, on the short term. So financial situation is one major factor to continue to watch. Um, and this poll gave a little bit of attention to that. But the, the, the other two areas of data that I think are significant, one is looking at swing counties. okay? So we know that the presidential election, uh, while, while popular vote uh, is, is is something, and we saw in this past election, the previous election that popular vote went to clinton and yet trump won the presidency via the electoral college it is that electoral college that is very critical and so this causes us to look at not just swing states states that move back and forth that could change the total number of electoral votes that go to one candidate or another but it's also looking at swing counties and so a couple of things about this and this is just to give you a little bit of, of, of uh, information to show you how close this race is. If we look at counties across the country as a whole, in the nearly 2,500 red counties, so counties that went um, for Trump uh, in 2016, uh, he he won in those counties by an average of 36 points, uh, so significant win. His current standing for this year's election is very similar where 63% of him uh, 63% of voters support him and 32% support Biden. So we're looking at a 31 point lead uh, in those red counties in the blue counties. So 360 blue counties that Hillary Clinton won by 35 points, okay? So a very similar spread in 2016. Right now, 60% of the voters support Biden and 30% back Trump. So we don't see a lot of movement in those counties that are either historically red or blue, at least based on the past election. However, there are about 300 what we call swing counties where the margin of victory was less than 10 points for either candidate, accounting for about one-fifth of the total U.S. electorate. So this is why this is substantial. So you're talking about one of every five voters lives in these 300 counties that are considered swing counties because the margin of difference was less than 10 points. So what we see there is that 50% of these counties back, uh, of the voters in these counties back Biden compared with 41% who back Trump. In 2016, Clinton won the cumulative vote in these counties by just one percentage point. So what, what, what that data tells us is that gap has widened. That we're, Instead of it being a one percentage point win, Biden has about a nine percentage point lead over Trump in these swing counties. Now, does that say Biden will win the election? No, it doesn't. It, it just points out that there are some key uh, bits of information like this, drilling down into those levels to see what is actually happening. And remember, we've got a lot of months ahead of us before the election, a lot of things could happen between now and then, but these are things that, that we need to be tracking and watching to see where uh, this is going. So the swing counties, that's one important uh, area. The other one that I pulled out of this poll is looking at various uh, constituency groups. Now, this poll looked at it by race, uh, by education, and, and, and those are some of those groups have even smaller groups within them. Groupings, we could look, certainly look at age as well, which this poll does, but, but there are also certain groups that may uh, be focused on certain issues or movements of some kind, and this is an area that I've said all along that, that, that we need to watch because the more uh, uh, groups, constituency-type groups, that uh, engage with this current administration and, and, and have challenges with it, uh, the, the more that that could add to a base of, of, of voters uh, that swing uh, against Trump. And so I, I've tracked this along the way to look at at how many different groups and their, their size and their impact. And what, what this poll was showing is, is a couple of things that are important to look at. Uh, one is that in the overall uh, support Uh, When we look at race, gender, and education, uh, the total for support for Donald Trump is 45% uh, compared to 48% for Biden. So we're talking about a very tight race here at this point. But what we do see is a significant gaps when we move into certain areas. One of those areas is men of other races uh, that are Latino. Uh, Biden leads by 14 points. Uh, in area in in white women with no college degree, uh, Trump leads by thirty seven points. White women, college graduates, trump lead uh, Biden leads by thirty points. women of other races and Latino, Biden leads by sixty three points. so these these are the kinds of things. Now, it really takes more of getting into those areas to see what the significance is, of that is looking at. The size of that population across the country of that are a voting age, but what it's showing is that that there are some uh, uh, there there are some gaps here, and it'll be interesting as we go through this and 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 get get through the crisis and, and beyond and start to be able to focus maybe back on the the election and where this is heading and what are going to be the key issues uh, in electing uh, either reelecting uh, Trump for another four years or electing a new president is is where these go, where these numbers go in these specific constituency groups and then how, what impact is that on the, on the larger uh, population and the, and the larger data in looking at support for either candidate. I think it's somewhere in the middle here when you start connecting uh, these groups uh, by uh, gender, age, uh, education um, and, and race with swing counties and looking at what impact that they may have on population vote, total vote by state, especially in swing states that could then add to the electoral count that either candidate may receive. But we'll be looking at that in more detail and trying to track that as we move toward the general election and trying to look at the numbers and what's happening across the country with voters who are viewing different Uh, viewing the candidates and trying to make up their decision, uh, make their decision for how they're going to vote uh, come November. We're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we will have Dr. Cogley with us, and we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to move outside the United States, and we're going to talk about the impact of the coronavirus uh, in Africa, an area of the world that Dr. Cogley himself has spent a significant amount of time. We'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but Cogley and Morrow have your back. Follow them on
2: Facebook. Search Cogley on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogley and Morrow is
1: a production of the Tarleton Radio Network.
0: Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on politics. For our last segment today, we do have Dr. Cogley back with us. As I said earlier in the show, we're practicing social distancing and we're hoping to move that into a, a zoom or online environment uh, very soon but uh, uh, until we do we, uh, we we have you on like a guest uh, here today right. and uh, but uh, uh, the topic that you that, that we're, we want to discuss is something that's kind of moving outside of our uh, boundaries of our own community state and nation where we've been very focused on what's happening here now with the the onslaught of in the growth of uh, of and spread of the coronavirus to look at this on an international level and maybe a part of the world that a lot of people have uh, in our region, our listeners, have not thought about uh, or really looked at because up until... Uh, the present, the the spread was not that significant uh, of the virus in Africa. But this is a part of the world that you have spent a tremendous amount of of time and and certainly research and you teach a course in African politics. Uh, And so uh, it's something we wanted to give some attention to as to what's happening uh, related to the virus and and what that might tell us in terms of, of where this thing is going.
2: Yeah, thanks, Eric. I, I, I'm not offended that I've been demoted from co-host to special guest, you know, under the <laughs> circumstances. Yeah, I've been to 26 African countries, spent several years uh, currently teaching African politics class. Uh, we've also had guest experts, our own Dr. Zubair from Nigeria and Dr. Banda from Malawi come in as special guests. Um, yeah, so of course the coronavirus is a worldwide pandemic and it's affecting every region. There's a map that's getting a lot of coverage um the johns hopkins coronavirus case map that's live updated with cases from every country i think cnn has been showing the map on its news and fox as well Um, and it looks on that map as if um you know africa is less affected at this moment Um, that may be true it may have had a later introduction onto the continent but also reliable data out of africa has always been a challenge so these are kind of the official cases that have been registered by the government. Um, So it may be lower now, but it may also just be a, there's going to be data challenges here as you go forward. Africa has some advantages dealing with coronavirus, but also some disadvantages.
0: Right. Well, and and that uh, part of it too, I think, is always for our listeners is understanding that Africa is is a a very, very diverse uh, 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 continent uh, that, that uh, the, the levels of government and their ability to address this and to engage with it, and then to report that kind of information, uh, some of them are very challenged in that.
2: Absolutely, there's 54 recognized sovereign states in Africa. Um, you know, it's it's not unified on a continental level. These are sovereign nation states with their own presidents and militaries, what 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 have you. Uh, so, on the positive, uh, something that Africa has that may be an advantage in dealing with this, it has a younger population. Distribution. So when we look at the population distribution in Europe or America, there's that baby boom generation. Population peaks out in the 40s, 50s, 60s, whereas Africa has a traditional pyramid population distribution. So the oldest of the population are the lowest percentage of the population by far and then the youngest are the biggest percent very pyramid the amount of Africans that are over 80 is very low less you know a fraction of a percent the amount of Africans that are over 70 is very low lower life expectancy and higher birth rates in Africa so because this virus does affect uh, older people with much more uh, mortality rate Africa has a younger population distribution that means you know, the mortality rate might be less. There's also this very interesting dynamic about weather. We see that the common flu is seasonal here in the U.S. It peaks during the cold months. Africa tends to be a warmer continent. What's interesting, as I've been reading up on why it's so seasonal in the U.S., the medical experts aren't exactly sure. And it'd be nice to get maybe, you know, Dr. Edwards back to kind of you know, give a more scientific answer to this. But some people feel there is some temperature dynamics to the spread of this type of virus. Um, but others feel it's, it results from behavior that itself is affected by temperature. So in cold weathers, people tend to go indoor and shut the windows more, With you know, and large crowds indoors can help spread the virus. So it's unclear if this is temperature-related or behavioral. If there is some temperature component where the virus struggles to spread in warmer climates, that would be good for Africa, although some African countries have temperate climates, like South Africa, which is pretty... Far from the the border, Africa's advantage with this like later introduction uh, seems to have you know it's coming out of China and got introduced to Europe and North America rather quickly, and maybe was introduced to Africa later. Um, and also there's in the media there's this talk about perhaps malaria medicine is uh, effective in treating it. And malaria medicine is widely available in Africa, and having traveled and bought malaria medication in Africa, it's available without a prescription at the local pharmacy. Um, So that may be an advantage. But having said these advantages, there's going to be many more disadvantages I'd be happy to go over.
0: Yeah, one of the concerns, I think, uh, early on when we were looking at this with especially study abroad programs to... Uh, other parts of the world that might have uh, higher poverty levels and maybe less health care infrastructure. Uh, I, I can see that in in Central America, Costa Rica and in a few places. but uh, what about in Africa where where uh, when you look at, at at the continent as a whole, and again, this may come down to looking at specific regions or even countries themselves, uh, it, is is that really a, a challenge when you do have, uh, areas that may not have adequate access to health care or health resources or you may have high concentrations of population that may uh, not have uh, uh, either that level of separation or, or really the resources to combat this.
2: Oh absolutely. So that was kind of my short list of what they the advantages they might have and there's a longer list of maybe disadvantages. So one of the disadvantages is really the challenge of social distancing in Africa. You do have some affluent communities, but that would be much more rare. Um, There's a lot of close living quarters, many people living in a shared space. Um, this can happen both in a poor urban setting, like a slum environment, or even out in the rural communities, you have these villages with kind of communal living spaces, even a communal water source, a communal bathroom arrangement. Um, so a lot of close living quarters where people live together, uh, the, the challenge of social distancing just based on the living um, standards. Also, there's a lack of education amongst the general population, you know, trying to explain how some invisible microscopic thing is the concern that you won't even get symptoms for several days is a challenge to try to get understanding through the population. And then also follow through of a a population with less education on on the recommended sanitary guidelines. Um, poverty also means there's a lack of savings to, you know, a lack of savings for a rainy day. Um, a lot of people need to work immediately to provide for their family immediately. You know, the, the income of the day is spent on the food of the day. And so the ability to kind of just, you know, bunker down at home for a month is very limited. Hmm. Um, also there's a, at the the country level, there's a lack of testing capacity, which is a problem we've seen elsewhere, but also a lack of critical care capacity uh, in the national hospitals, especially those ventilators. You know, uh, USA doesn't have enough ventilators, let alone some of these developing countries with much less health care capacity. And I would say in terms of like a government response, we see in the USA, you know, the, the, the Congress taking action in terms of, uh, you know, distributing some funds, Um, There is no lack of demand for African currencies on the international market. So if the government's going to create more currency available, that would lead directly to inflation. It it won't be uh, sucked up by other countries. Um, and so another thing is that these more developed countries oftentimes will help Africa in certain global pandemics, but these developed countries are really need to focus on themselves right now. Their priority is them, themselves. And you study nationalism and the na- national self-interest. You know, they're willing to help Africa, but the focus might be on themselves for the immediate future.
0: Right. That was one of my concerns in that this has hit other areas first. And so even resources that are gathered at the global level uh are being challenged to meet where this crisis is at the moment and and will those will there even be any resources left uh if this thing rolls through other continents and areas in a significant way and that that that's something that that's we've yet to see we just don't know the 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 outcome of this on the long-term scale and what the impact will be on areas that that certainly may not be able to uh address the crisis in the ways that uh, the United States or even countries in Europe or even China have been able to do.
2: Yeah, and you can imagine maybe in the long term, as the U.S. and Europe develops, increases their production of ventilators and masks and what have you, at some point when this thing's under control, they may have a surplus and may be able to help out African countries. But in the short term, they don't have enough to meet their own demands. Uh, one final challenge, and we're kind of going to experience this in the USA, too, is the political challenges. There were a lot of important elections set up this year in Africa. There's a number of countries that are going to have presidential elections. Malawi was expecting to have one in July. You know, Burkina Faso, Central African Republic, Ghana, Ivory Coast. Um, there's quite a number of countries that have scheduled major elections to take place this year and of course they have more of the traditional show up in wait in line show up in person cast your vote systems of elections and fraud is always a concern Uh, whether or not how much of it is going on that might be disputed between the the different political parties. But it's going to be a challenge to execute these elections in this environment. And there is kind of a legitimate reason to maybe delay or alter the elections. But there might be concern by the other party that that's Mm -hmm. an excuse. Uh, So this this health pandemic can lead to these kind of political disputes as elections become disturbed.
0: Right. In a country that that has regularly had Challenges with these kinds of power transitions, which I think is an area of re, of your research, that that's significant. I mean, any th- any time a pattern that's that's been established and that has to be disrupted in some way, that just opens the door uh, to the possibilities of instability in in some way or another. So I, I'm. I'm certain sure that that has to be a concern in many countries
2: yeah malawi has a runoff scheduled for july and july you know is coming in a couple months the president had come in first place in the first round but was going to be forced by the courts to a runoff uh, between the top two and people were thinking the opponent was actually strong the opponent was uh, poised to win this runoff but now the president has a very legitimate reason to maybe try to delay the elections and of course the opponent will look at this as he's, he's using an excuse to delay the election. So you can see how this naturally is going to mm-hmm. lead to some political disputes. And with 54 countries, every year there's presidential elections, parliamentary elections going on on the continent. Uh, this is going to be tough to execute, especially with something like mail-in ballots is not a norm on that continent.
0: Right. I think this helps our, our listeners and all of us here in central Texas to really have a global perspective of the impact of of this crisis and uh, we've seen it all the way in this show today from local school districts to to Africa it's just significant and and why people need to be engaged with resources news and information uh, that help them to understand uh, uh, and 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 see this uh, around the world and and how it is impacting lives and and be a part of the discussion about the solutions and changes and and really overcoming this and working through it and and being prepared in the future. So thank you, Nathaniel, for joining us for for today. And we'll look forward to our show for next week. Uh, We're hoping to welcome the director of the Stephenville Economic Development Association to talk about economic issues here in our community in the region. We thank you today for joining us on Cogley and Morrow on politics on 90.5 KTRL-FM.
1: the Tarleton Radio Network podcast
2: with production from A.J. Heyer
1: and Taylor Welch.
2: Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.